we ha had another sponsor come forward to ask us to attend the National Caregiving Conference in Chicago, and that's where we all met for the first time, and it was the most amazing sisterhood <laughs> highlight of my life. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and creative guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager, and I love to hear from my listeners. My new website, ZestfulAging.com, is up and running, and it makes it easy for you to leave comments or suggestions. As a psychotherapist with a specialty in food and eating issues, I know that the holidays can be a real challenge when it comes to food. Food and family visits are often a tricky combination. So if you'd like to learn how to have a more peaceful relationship with food, eating, and your body, both during the holidays and the rest of the year, check out my web course, The Wisdom of Mindful Eating. This course is super practical and it's user-friendly. It has the power to change your life. You'll find the course on the website, zestfulaging.com. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker from her CD, Buffalo Hotel, and it will be available in January of 2020. Judy Banker is also a guest, so you can hear my interview with her on the podcast. Well, I've got my Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. Today we're speaking with Vicki Tapia, who enjoyed a 30-year career as a lactation consultant before writing about her caregiving journey with both parents. Her book, Somebody Stole My Iron, a family memoir of dementia, was a finalist in the High Plains Book Awards in 2015. And Vicki's book, Maggie, A Journey of Love, Loss, and Survival, was inspired by the real-life saga of her great-grandmother, and the book was recently named Solo Medalist for the New Apple Literary Awards for Historical Fiction 2018, and was also a finalist in the 2019 Next Generation Indie Book Awards. Vicki's also the co-founder of All's Authors, who you've heard me talk about and interview other folks from All's Authors. It's a community of authors sharing personal stories to light the way for others with a vision to lift the silence and stigma of Alzheimer's. Welcome to the show, Vicki. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here. So, Let's start with the question, how do you go from being a lactation consultant to being an author? That's a great question. It would never have crossed my mind 25 years ago that I would be reinvented as an author. I've always loved to write. I started keeping diaries when I was a child and progressed from there to blank ledger books to the point where at this stage in my life I have a drawer full of journals that I've written. I find that I wrote more in times of stress probably to help me cope with whatever dilemma I was going through when I was 16 or 25 mm -hmm. or 40. But I never 
dreamed that I would have published books as I have done. I, I think circumstances drew me to become an author. It took me years. I have an education degree and it never worked out for me to teach and it took me quite a while to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was probably 36 <laughs> when I came to when I began my career as a lactation consultant. Well, maybe not quite that old, but um, and that was back in a time when there weren't many of that type of that people doing that type of profession. And I loved, loved, loved what I did helping mothers and babies get off to a good start in life with that essential bonding. And what happened though was towards the end of my career in the early 2000s, I started noticing some signs that things weren't quite on what they should be with my parents. And as it turned out, both of my parents had dementia. My dad had Parkinson's related dementia and my mom had Alzheimer's as well as vascular dementia. They were both diagnosed within a few months of each other. And I understood little about the disease at that time and started looking for resources to read. And there were plenty of medical explanations out there, books about why and how. But what I was looking for were books that were written by other people that had a loved one with this disease. There were few to be found in the early 2000s. Whatever I did found, I did find I devoured. So as time went on, my parents who lived two hours east of me eventually moved to the city where I live into an assisted living facility. My dad into a memory care cottage. My mom lived on her own for about two years, but the decline continued and it was very stressful as a caregiver making those day-to-day -day decisions I was worried I was not making the best decisions I did the best I could as all of us usually do mm -hmm. my coping mechanism was writing I as I said I've always enjoyed writing so when I would come home from visiting them I would sit down at my computer and just type out all my angst mm -hmm. and it would helped it was a totally a coping mechanism after about a year of this I realized I was writing a book I was writing down the things that I wish I had known the lessons I had learned the things I stumbled over plus anecdotes about funny things that happened to my parents and so I kept after it um, and that's Did how... you share it, Vicki, or was it just for you? Uh, I it, it started out just for me. And as time went on, I had talked to... It, amazingly, no, it's not amazing. A lot of my friends' parents also have some form of dementia. And if I spoke of my, my diary that I had been keeping, my journal, they would ask if they might be able to read it, if they, there might be ideas in there to help them with... with their journey. Mm -hmm. So I lent it out a few times and people were very positive. They were saying, You're, you should not be keeping this to yourself. This is information that would be helpful to a lot of people. You should publish this. And so I began to think, oh, well, maybe that that's a possibility. Um, from in, when I started writing my diary till it was finally published was nine years, not in writing, not in editing, but a lot of fits and starts. I, I, 
I put it away for three years after one friend said, how could you dishonor your parents in this way? That mm. frightened me that I was doing something wrong. So I, I just left it on my hard drive for three years. But I had a very tenacious friend who kept who had read it, who kept saying, why are you keeping it to yourself? <laughs> she um, worked oh, on me. Two yes, different, two different <laughs> opinions. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, but she, that the second one prevailed and because there was more than one person saying, you need to share this information. And so I did pursue publication. And that took, of course, a couple more years. Um, and then there was a year to get it launched. So it, all in all, um, nine years passed before I became a, uh, a published author of a book. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of things that have been particularly helpful, do you think, for people who are reading, who, who read your diary then and who, and who reads Somebody Stole My Iron? Um, as far as helpful to them as they're reading it, I think yes. reading a real-life story of someone who was in the trenches it wasn't just a, a description of what you might find or what could happen. It actually was real life. I think things that I found that might help people were knowing a lot of emotions were, were normal. I don't know if that's the right word, but anxiety and grief, um, anger, the times you felt so frustrated with everything, mm -hmm. um, the, the situation, maybe something that's happening at the facility, um, and the sadness that we all share, the hopelessness at times, uh, even my unrealistic hopes. I thought when I when my parents moved here that we mom and I'd get together and bake chocolate chip cookies, and I soon mm. learned that probably wasn't going to happen. Um, mm. You know, the guilt, probably the overriding emotion, there is is guilt that, you're, that I wasn't doing enough, um, visiting enough, making the, the right choice for medication, all those things. I, I think actually for a person to see that and realize, oh, I'm, it's not just me. Uh -huh. This is something that, that lots of people probably are going through. And, and just giving concrete advice, like be sure you get the durable power of attorney and medical power of attorney in, in place and really research the assisted living facility beyond just looking at the outer trappings of it. You know, okay. check talk to some of the the CNAs, the healthcare workers that are there, and see what they're like as people. Um, what's the turnover rate? I, I think practical things I didn't even think about doing when I picked the assisted living facility where my parents lived. Uh, I think there are a lot of ebbs and flows, uh, valleys and peaks that we go through as caregivers. That um, you know, picking the selecting a a gerontologist is that the right thing to do, or do you want just a, a, an internist for your parents? What what are the the pros and cons there? I could go on and on. There there's so mm. many decisions that that have to be made. You know, do you want your parents to have a flu shot every year? Do you want mm. to extend mm. their their lives as as long as possible? Do you want to let nature take its course? I mean, what what did your did your parents have something in place? What were their final wishes? Be sure you know that. Um, be sure you have access to the affidavits giving you, if they have signed over medical power of attorney, where are the, where's the paperwork? You need that. It's not just something, I mean, for example, my parents <laughs> signed 
the durable power of attorney when they moved to Billings. It was a few years later when I was going through their files that I found they'd already done it years oh. before and had forgotten and hadn't told me. I see. Are you the only child, Vicki? Um, more or less. I, I do have an older brother. And that was another reason why I didn't publish the book for a long time was that he doesn't come across in the best light because I'm I'm very, very honest about mm -hmm. his lack of involvement. He he said to me he preferred to remember them as they were and he mm. was AWOL. Um, so so I, that's a luxury you did not have. No, and you know, that's also a double-edged sword I found from other people that I talked to. They said, oh, you were so lucky that you didn't have to, to work with a, a sibling that had a different opinion than you and, and argue over decisions. You just made the decision. And, and hmm. in, in some ways that made me feel better hmm. that um, although I didn't relish making all the decisions on my own, I certainly didn't have to argue with anybody about why I wanted to take the course of action that I had decided was the best for them. So yes, he, he um, is 15 years older than I am and lives several states away. And uh, But I didn't also want to completely alienate him by publishing my book. So I, I did change some of the names of my parents and the cities and his name just to protect privacy. Mm -hmm. That's that's very interesting. Um, I have clients who have a similar situation. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, uncommon. Yep, yeah, many people have talked to me that yep, my my brother, my sister, whatever, just didn't want to be involved. And I felt very frustrated with him at times. And I mm -hmm. called and I said, "Please, I need you to come. My mom is just out of control." And he's like, "Excuse me, excuse me. Do we have a bad phone connection? I can't hear oh, what you're saying." Oh wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that would be a sitcom if it wasn't so sad. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hi, Zestful Agers. I'll be attending the International Federation of Aging's 15th Global Conference on Aging in November of 2020. And if you're interested in improving your understanding of age-friendly environments, debating solutions to address inequalities, confronting the reality of ageism and delving into what it means to enable the functional ability of an older person, head over to ifa2020.org to find out more. There's an early bird special on until the end of the year, so take advantage and join me in Niagara Falls. I'll see you there. So how did, in addition to you getting your own kind of therapy, writing and venting and processing, you know, by doing your journals, what other support was available to you going through this journey with your parents? Well, I tried a support group and it turned out I was further down the road than they were and I ended up being the person that everyone was asking questions of oh no. which was, <laughs> was fine but it just really it was very draining oh, um, I talked to my friends who had parents with uh, some type of dementia but that you can only do so often too because it eventually sounds like all you're doing is sounded like what I was doing was complaining or whining uh, my husband was marvelous he he was such a good listener it helped. It really does help as a caregiver if there's someone else that you can to talk with okay. and, and just share what's going on in your, your mind because I think that caregivers on as a general rule 
forget about themselves and don't pay attention to self-care and end up sometimes feeling resentful and depressed and alone in the world. Did you have to kind of discipline yourself to say, I need to do something self-caring? You know, no, I did not. I should have. I had one of the doctors, the psychiatrist that was handling my mom's medications, tell me that she, she thought I was suffering from burnout. And I, I just sort of brushed it aside and went on. I, because when you're, I was working, I was taking care of them who had time for self-care. All right. <laughs> Um, I will say that I went and had a massage once a month, and that was also a wonderful, that was some self-care I did for myself. I see. So, it, you know, I'm just thinking about your life and you doing, you know, your work as a lactation consultant, and all of a sudden this, I mean, your whole identity, it seems, has been spun around. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> it, it, in some ways, it, it was a little bit like raising children. You're so caught up in, in raising the kids that you kind of lose sight of yourself. And I think for a time, I kind of the same thing happened all over again in caring for my parents and working, mm -hmm. that it was hard to filter out the me. That's what, why writing helped me so much. Mm -hmm. talk, talk a little bit about All's Authors, because it sounds to me that it's a very special kind of network and collaboration. It is. It's it's amazing. It gives me goosebumps <laughs> just to think about how this all came about back in late 2015. Um, somehow, I guess I, it must have been on Twitter that I came into contact with this other author whose parents both had dementia, who were diagnosed on the same day. And this is I, Jean Lee. This is Jean Lee. <laughs> we just started kind of an interaction, and I thought, I have to read this book. And even now, I, I talk, it makes me very emotional. <sighs> I talk about it and just goosebumps because I thought, I feel like I know this person. She feels, it, it, she feels like a sister to me. And I, I, it, was, it was a thought I had as I read the book, but I, you know, I, an interaction on Twitter doesn't necessarily make you into to best friends. However, she approached me um, saying that she had been approached by a, an author who had written a novel about Alzheimer's. She was a nurse, uh, Marianne Shuko, in New York, upstate New York. Who I've interviewed as well. Yes, okay. <laughs> yes. And, and they wondered... Marianne approached Jean to see if she knew any other authors of Alzheimer's books that she thought maybe might want to promote their books together. And Jean thought of me. And so we began as pr uh, promoting each other's books. I, I at first thought, why would I, why would I team up with somebody, my competition of all right. things? Right, <laughs> exactly. But uh, Marianne said something I thought was very wise. She said, if someone's going to read one book about Alzheimer's disease, they're probably going to read two or three. So mm. let's give it a try, girls. Mm -hmm. So we did. And the result was positive. And we began communicating with each other. And probably Marianne came up with the idea that we should continue to promote together. But what if we started uh, in, during... Brain Awareness, Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month in June, if we found other authors and had them tell us their story and posted their book and an essay 
every day in the month of June 2016. And that while it almost sounds a little daunting to think that we did this, that's yeah. what we did. And at the end of the month, we still had untapped resources, other authors. We thought, well, maybe we could do this once a week. So let's see how long we can make this last. And that was in you know, June of 2016. And now to date, we're, I think, believe we're over 200 authors of books and blogs that we post once a week to highlight their books and help make form. We've got a community of authors. We're bringing people together in hopes of connecting with other, not only authors, but we want to connect people that are looking for resources with the personal experiences of those impacted by the disease. And, mm -hmm. and I understand there was some, some kind of cruise also. Oh, yes, there was. We were invited to showcase. We had a, a mentor who, or a sponsor, that wanted to put together a library of our books to send on this cruise to a dementia cruise. It's, it was designed for people and their par uh, partners with mild dementia. And Marianne went on the cruise as well. And we were able to reach a number of people through our library books, plus our anthology that we have published like last fall with 58 caregiving stories. It's all the essays that were published on our website for the first year. And we're right now working on volume two, which will be the second year. Unbelievable. This, I mean, it sounds like it's, it's really changed your life. It has changed my life. We've, Jean and I met probably in 2017 and Anne, and then we had added, besides Marianne, Jean and I, we had added three more team members, Anne Campanella, Irene Olson, and Catherine Harrison, from, and they're Toronto and Washington State and North Carolina. And we never met each other except in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. But last November, we, were, we ha had another sponsor come forward to ask us to attend the National Caregiving Conference in Chicago and that's where we all met for the first time and it was the most amazing sisterhood a highlight of my life I think um, to, to I've all heard it described by some of your sisters can you talk a little bit about coming together in Chicago and what it was like for you it, uh, it was a dream come true when you you become very close to someone over cyberspace mm. and suddenly you're seeing them and they're real we couldn't stop touching each other mm. oh <laughs> um, my goodness lots of tears and hugs and and just you're real you're real you're not just a face on a computer screen we knew that was true but I of mean, course to, to see somebody it, oh. it, was, it was amazing uh, and wonderful and we just it wasn't like meeting someone for the first time. Of course, no. we, we were already You know their we, deepest pain. Yes. You already knew their deepest, darkest pain. We did. We did. So it was immediate camaraderie and um, closeness. And we could laughs and laughter. and Just we couldn't spend enough time together. Mm -hmm. So it, it has, has changed my life to meet all these women and all the other authors 
meeting new authors every week and we work to each of us works with authors to bring them on board all the people that I've met around I mean I, I posted somebody from Israel and we've had people from the UK and Ireland and Australia I had one author from Australia it's globally we've managed to bring people together so I, I guess if you told me this in in 2000 and 13, 14, 15, I would have said, what are you talking about? (laughs) That I would become part of this movement. And and I'm so lucky that to be a part of this and watch it grow. Mm, And watch it help others. Mm -hmm. Yes. What are your hopes for this movement? What are your like long-term dreams for all authors? That we go out of business because a cure is found. Uh-huh. That would be my the best goal. Mm. In the meantime, as we move toward that, bringing more people together, being more visually available to people so that those people seeking information and resources are able to find us, spreading the word that we're a network of, of people that have been there and that we're reaching out to others to help them on their journey. Um, as best as we can. Are there any... I I just wanted to add one other thing that we could also help to encourage healing um, by just embracing that power uh, uh, that we're vulnerable, that people aren't alone. We're out there. What an important message that is. What... um... Are there times when you have to be a little bit careful of sort of living this journey 24-7? Are there times you have to put it aside and just watch maybe a silly movie or read a book that is what one of my friends calls swimming in the shallow end? Ah, I call it eating candy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. It is easy because a little bit obsessive compulsive. It, we are so connected with each other. There's always something on Slack, um, inter- place where we interact, or emails, or there's an author contacting us, or we're uh, posting. There's always something. something to do. There's always something to do, and mm-hmm. I have to tear myself away from my computer and close it, and mm-hmm. not look at my phone. And just mm. go out, watch a movie, um, spend time with people that live in buildings. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because it's easy to get caught up in everything that's going on. And who? And I'm so curious. I, I don't want to miss a message. I don't want to get left behind. So just all the things that are going on all the time. It seems like, you know, taking a vacation, you get so far behind because so much happens. Um, <laughs> I think that's the idea, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to miss some of that. Oh, it's so hard. I mean, oh, my goodness. I'm, I could improve in that area. And you have a little dog. I think that might be a nice distraction. We talked about your little doggy before uh, we started recording. Is that, uh, is he a... A, a way to kind of unwind or he is my great companion we oh. take a walk every day unless it's 30 below but we're out uh-huh. walking and enjoying the, the outdoors uh, my husband and I cycle on we ride a tandem when mm. the weather is cooperative 
yes, I do have a life outside of all's authors, but mm-hmm. it, it's easy to just stay connected. Probably. Well, it sounds, it sounds like also it feels good. I mean, there's a part of mm-hmm. it's like my sisterhood is out there. It is. And that feels it sounds like that feels so good and and comfortable and all those you're getting a lot of goodies but then the other side of it of course is it started with some very painful realities isn't that the truth i that's why again it's so unexpected that all this grew out of such pain Mm -hmm. Um, and i've established such loving relationships with these women Mm -hmm. um so it just again goes to show that good things can happen when it doesn't seem like it starts out that way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you want to give our listeners uh, some advice about what they might begin thinking about when they're noticing their loved ones are changing or having some concerning symptoms um, that look like Alzheimer's and dementia? What's the, yeah, what's the first step? What should they, where to begin, Mm -hmm. where to begin? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I believe an evaluation is always a a step in the right direction. The issue with that is many times the affected person is unwilling to be evaluated. Mm -hmm. I know that was the case with my mom for a few years. She resisted. But, you know, if when hopefully you're, the person goes in for their annual exam. The doctor can be alerted in, in advance of what's going on and maybe be able to evaluate them when they come in for their yearly exam. Oh, I, think, I see. Okay. Uh, also, for me, um, my mom probably was affected by dementia for years before I finally picked up on it. In fact, before any of our family picked up on it, some very strange things happened, but we we're able to normalize it, brush it off, just laugh it off and just think, oh, it wasn't that funny, a senior moment. But it was so much more than that. And I think even being aware of the difference between normal memory loss and something dementia-related is important for all of us to be aware of so that we do see those clues when they first appear. Because early diagnosis is important. I mean, you need to get that durable medical power of a attorney and in place before the person actually has a written diagnosis and I think that that helps it also helps with if the affected person has a say in what they want their end-of-life care to be Mm. what kind of facility they'd like to live in and they can be involved in some of the decision-making process if this is evaluated early enough so that that sounds very important yes because it's going to be a bumpy road. There's no way around it. And if some of the pre-planning can be done ahead of time and and also involve the person that's affected while they are still able to make some sorts of choices, I think that's so important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and is is very consistent with what I've heard from people who are doing end-of-life work and services that the more information you have from the loved one the easier your job is Mm -hmm. and um it just goes better all the way around because our system isn't really quite ready to do some of the work we need them to do the doctors are not there to decide necessarily you know to do end-of-life planning in a way that we might want it to be done for our loved one exactly so it's important, uh, early diagnosis. And plus, who knows what kind of trials, drug trials might be available mm-hmm. that you could involve your, your loved one in. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that sounds really important. Vicki, where can people reach you and learn more about you, your books, and all's authors? You can reach me through VickiTapia.com. That's my website. Mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter at VickLeeTap okay. and Facebook. Um, Somebody Stole My Iron. Mm-hmm. And also AllsAuthors.com. Okay, that's great. So I will put that in the show notes so people can find you. And I just want to thank you for sharing your story and being very honest about the bumps in the road, as you call them. And then also some of the hope that you've experienced. Yes, hope is a good thing. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. <music>